1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and today I will be speaking with John Bushnell, professor of history at Northwestern University. He's the author of the 2017... 2017- Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and today I will be speaking with John Bushnell, professor of history at Northwestern University. He's the author of the 2017 book, Russian Peasant Women Who Refused to Marry, Spossified Old Believers in the 18th and 19th Centuries. Dr. Bushnell, thank you very much for taking the time to discuss your book today.
0: Thank you for being interested. <laughs>
1: Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your research background and how you came to be interested in this particular topic?
0: Uh, The the short version is the easiest one. Um, The very first book I wrote was on the mutinies by soldiers during the 1905-1906 revolution. And to make a long story short, I explained the particular pattern of the mutinies uh, on the basis of what I thought was peasant psychology Uh, But by the time I'd finished the book, I realized I really didn't know very much about peasants, and I was kind of interested by the time I finished that book. Uh, And so I decided I would write my next book on peasant culture. Uh, And after doing some reading, I realized that um, one of the best documented features of peasant culture was marriage, because both the church and the state took Kept track of um, of uh, of of marriage and you know in sort of demographic in a demographic way, uh, and also collected a a lot of documents about marriage, wrote a lot of reports about marriage, about marriage violations, and so on and so forth. So there was uh, that seemed to me to be the, as a first guess, the best way to get a long historical take on. What was obviously an important uh, form of peasant, of um, peasant culture, segment of peasant culture, and did did indeed turn out to be uh, a very a useful way to get at um, the history of peasants in a way that didn't have a great deal to do with uh, the economy. Most of most most of the sort of long historical. Um, views of peasantry at that time were economic, for good reasons, because uh, the peasant economy was important in Russia, because serfdom was an important issue, um, and because social historians were interested in that kind of thing. and it turned out that I learned an awful lot about peasants uh, just by spending a number of years uh, looking at peasant marriage in, in as many different ways as I could. Uh, and then I went to... I had spent a lot of time in uh, Riazan, and in Riazan province, uh, peasants married universally. Universal marriage was the assumed um, practice of all Russian peasants, every Russian historian, every Russian ethnographer who studied peasants or peasant marriage, just, just insisted that Russian peasants married universally, was true uh, in every place that I worked from Moscow on south, But I decided I needed to look at a different kind of peasants, peasants who lived in a different economic environment, different Ecology, and I went to Vladimir, and on a lark ordered a set of uh, documents that covered Gorchavets Uyezd, and I picked some of those at random, and at random I landed on a parish, Kuplia Parish. Uh, in which there were was clear evidence that large numbers of adult women were unmarried, uh, and that took me by surprise. I didn't really know uh, what to make of it at first. I had I made no large assumptions. I found it interesting, and I thought about that for a while. Of course, it was possible to find groups of peasants who didn't marry almost everywhere, um, but the Peasants in Kupli Parish set a kind of record for marriage avoidance, or that is the women did in the one village, Slučkova. Again, this just struck me as amazing. So um, in 1795, that was a census year, 1795, um, 44% of all adult peasant women, that is all peasant women 25 years and older. 25 was the cutoff age for marriage in that parish, Paris. If women weren't, if women hadn't married by 25, they just didn't marry. Um, so, 44% of all of the women in that village who were 25 years old and older had never married and never did. And then when I got an, more documents, um, so I could trace. You know what had happened to women born in the village. That is, some women married away. So the 44% includes a lot of wives who were import, came from other, born in other village and married into um, Sluchkova. And it turned out that between 1763 and 1795, 70% of all women born in the village of Sluchkova never married, which was my, mind-boggling to me. Anyway, so that's what launched me uh, on this particular project. I went, I went and looked for, went out looking for other examples to see if this was just a, a fluke or um, whether it represented a, to that point, completely unknown pattern of Russian peasant marriage.
1: And what did you discover when you uh, thought to find an answer to this question of why there were so many women who were unmarried?
0: Uh, Eventually, I realized that this was a religious practice. Um, uh, Of course, that was my first inclination, but I had uh, no particular reason, no particular evidence because these peasants I uh, didn't leave documents behind. These, these by the way, were uh, hmm, the crown peasants. That is, they belonged to the family of the ruler. And I went to look in the sort of in St. Petersburg or back when I started, it was still Leningrad. Um, no, pardon me. It was anyway. So St. Petersburg. And there was absolutely no correspondence between the Grykhovyets um, uh, Crown Peasant Office and the, administ- the central administration in St. Petersburg. So I discovered that in fact, the only evidence I was going to be able to use was demographic records. Now the clue in, in for Sluchkova, and this was another astounding um, coincidence, uh, this is the the Kupia parish is the only, produced the only set of what are called confession records. This is every year the priest has to compile a list of every one of his uh, parishioners from uh, just from newborn babes to the oldest man or woman in the parish. Uh, and the priests, did a very good job of uh, identifying who, or it seemed to me, they were doing a very good job of identifying old believers, a kind of uh, Russian dissidents. Now, many in many parishes, you find notations in these annual confession registers of who didn't go to confession because they were old believers. It said they don't go to... The priest is supposed to explain why... His parishioners are not going to confession, and sometimes because they're sick, sometimes because they're away during Lent. Lent is when Russian uh, peasants make their annual confession, uh, and then they sometimes identify this as an old believer or one member of the family is an old believer, the whole family is an old believer. In uh, For part of the first half of the 19th century, the Kuplia priests identified what confession uh what particular variety of old believers uh, their old believers were and in the in the the first half of the 19th century the priest identified most of the old believers in the parish as being members of the spasavite covenant I, i knew absolutely nothing well, next to nothing about uh, Spasovites when I um, began to follow these leads. And it turned out that nobody knew very much about uh, Spasovites, and nobody who had ever written about Spasovites uh, that is, no scholars who had written about Spasovites, no religious commentators who wrote about Spasovites none of them had ever said, uh, that Sposavite women did not marry, and did not marry in very large numbers. Uh, so having discovered this phenomenon of large numbers of uh, women uh, marrying, uh, not marrying, and then trying to figure out who they were, what their likely reasons were, I identified the Sposavite um, covenant as probably providing the inspiration for their aversion to marriage. And, you know, having identified one site of um, resistance to marriage, uh, I went on the look. I sort of knew what I had enough clues from Kupia Parish that I knew what to look for. And I very quickly discovered other other sites of resistance to marriage. And lo and behold, uh, almost every um, incident of full-scale resistance to marriage, uh, there were spasivites around. And I decided that just couldn't be a coincidence.
1: Uh, So just for our listeners who might not be familiar, can you talk a little bit about what an old believer actually is and how they're different from mainstream Russian Orthodox?
0: So... All believers emerged in response to religious reforms uh, carried out in the middle of the 17th uh, century by uh, patriarch Nikon. Well, Nikon supervised, oversaw the reforms. There were other people uh, doing some of the work. Uh, and these reforms generally involved changing uh, rituals slightly or to the outside eye, it seems like a slight change when you, instead of uh, making the sign of the cross with two fingers, you begin to use three fingers instead uh, when you um, say Alleluia two times instead of once in the, at a certain point or three times at a certain point uh, in the service. There are also some changes to religious texts, again, to an outsider, they seem pretty minor. Uh, spelling Jesus with two eyes in, in the Russian spelling at the be, so two eyes at the beginning of the name instead of one, which had been the way the name was spelled before uh, the uh, Nikon's reforms. Um, so the difference between so old believers uh, thought that these were. Theoretical reforms, they thought that the, and there, there were many of them, not just a few, there were many changes, minor, we, we say minor changes, but to the um, the people who became old believers, this all liked a, a terrible def- mm. a departure from uh, proper orthodoxy. They thought that because for so many centuries, they assumed, for, since Nikon was making alterations, and what the old believers assumed was the original uh, set of this set of rituals that had been adopted when uh, Christianity arrived in what became Russia and uh, texts were all this had all had had lasted unchanged over all those same centuries. Even minor changes uh, seemed uh, terribly threatening and they concluded that, the old believers concluded, most of them, uh, that um, the entire Orthodox Church had become heretical uh, and that this marked the approaching end of the world, that the Antichrist uh, was in fact probably roaming Russia in the aftermath of these reforms. Now, I, I don't mean to belittle the old believer sensibility of what I've been calling minor uh, changes. To the, for for them, those rituals were uh, immensely important. The changes were deeply symbolic and offensive, uh, and they sincerely believed that the official Orthodox Church had gone off the rails. Had obviously, this is the devil at work, the Antichrist at work, uh, that these, these this set of changes that was introduced uh, could not be anything other than a sig- sig- signal that um, uh, the end times were uh, approaching. So, although the changes looked minor, people took them very seriously, and I think about how important even minor symbolic changes can be given up for instance our own recent controversies over do you is it is it permissible to kneel uh, when uh, the national anthem is being us um, uh, being sung or how do you properly treat a flag I mean they're all these are all just sort of symbolic differences uh, whose importance most people would say is or many people would say is vastly exaggerated, but if if uh, those kinds of symbolic differences can have a major impact on modern Americans, then I think i'm pr- I'm prepared to understand why these seemingly minor changes would have a tremendous impact in seventeenth century Russia and later.
1: Yeah, and in fact, in the original Russian uh, so they're actually even called old ritualists, right rather than old believers. Old
0: ritual, old ritualists. Yes, I I thought about calling them old ritualists, but old old believers has kind of become the standard translation, and I thought I'd use that word too.
1: Um. Now, how did the their theological beliefs impact their matrimonial and their sexual behavior that so distinguished them? Right.
0: Yeah. right. Well, so theolo- theology here. Um, so theologically speaking, maybe maybe we could have a very interesting. Maybe you could enlighten me about this uh i don't come out of a religious uh, studies background at all i had to uh, i i knew surprisingly little about russian religious history when i launched onto this project because i didn't when this project i didn't realize that i was going to have to know that those kinds of things so i have spent a lot of time reading but theology is not my strong point that's for sure uh my impression is basically uh theologically the Official Orthodox and the old believers share the same theological views. That is, that is, they claim to believe the same things. They generally do believe the same things. That is, they. Sort of have, it's just that uh, the old believers insist that it's not just belief; it's actual practice. And in practice, um, the uh, the Orthodox Church has taken a left turn. Um, nevertheless. Um, If the official Orthodox Church is heretical, that has major consequences for religious practice. Among other things, uh, it means that there is no hierarchy. Now I should explain, as you you know, uh, that old believers come in two basic varieties. There are the priestless old believers uh, and they're the ones that I have uh, focused on in this study. The priesthood of old believers call themselves um, priestless and or are called priestless by others uh, because they insist that the priesthood disappeared after the niconian uh, reforms. The priesthood disappeared because no bishop well, there's a, there's, some, there's an exception here, but in effect, no bishop joined the old believers, and no priests can be um, created without bishops laying, as we would Protestants would say, laying their hands on, or Catholics too, I suppose, uh, laying, laying the hands on, sort of blessing uh, someone into into priesthood. Uh, So when the last of the priests who had become priests before the Niconian forms died, priesthood, according to the old believers, had disappeared. It's very difficult to lead a Christian life without priesthood. Priests uh, um, deliver the sacraments, just for instance, with a couple of exceptions. The sacraments require Uh, priests to perform them the other variety of uh, old believers generally called well they're either called priestly or priesthood i prefer priesthood they they too are fundamentally similar uh, to orthodox when it comes to matters of the faith they solved the problem of the absence of priesthood uh, of priests by hmm, anointed by taking priests who <laughs> had been become priests after the Niconian reforms and therefore were illegitimate priests they reconsecrated them by anointing them with myrrh, um, you know, saying the right set of prayers and blessings and things like that. I should say that there's absolutely uh, no canonical, no no rules of the Orthodox Church allow for that kind of sort of rebranding of uh, 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 an illegitimate priest to make the priest legitimate. But uh, they did struggle on with priests who fled the uh, Orthodox Church and became old believers themselves. And then in the middle of the 19th century, in another sneaky left-handed kind of way, uh, they managed to create their own independent hierarchy with bishops who could then uh, create new priests Entirely out of old believers, they didn't depend upon the, the fugitive priests who ran away from the Orthodox uh, Church. Now, so back to the priesthood. I mean, I mean the priestless uh, old believers—they have—they claim to be def- defending and preserving all of the old practices. Uh, But, of course, they have to be, had to be reformers, innovators, in order to carry on their, what they thought of as proper orthodox life, proper orthodox um, uh, practice. And I will, I guess, here take a right turn uh, into the Spassavites, because the Spassavites had even more radical uh, beliefs than, Or radical, let's call radical rejectionist beliefs, than any other of the various priestless covenants. One of the things that happened after uh, the schism in the Russian Orthodox Church uh, is that all of those who called themselves old believers had to invent new ways of doing old things. And it's not surprising that just like Protestants who broke away from the Catholic Church, different groups of these priestless old believers. Invented different ways of carrying on what they thought uh, was uh, the old, the old, uh, the old belief. So, uh, the Spasovites came to the the founder of the Spasovites came to the radical conclusion that after the Naconian reforms, God had withdrawn His grace from the world. And as God withdrew his grace, all of the church sacraments also departed from the world. All of them, even two sacraments that uh, the old Orthodox rules had allowed laymen to uh, perform or administer uh, in or celebrate in the absence of a priest. Uh, for instance, you could baptize a lay a lay person, a lay member of the Orthodox Church, could baptize a newborn child. Uh, could also, uh, I don't don't want to administer confession. Isn't right here confession in place of a priest? But the the Sposavites insisted that no, uh, even those two sacraments had disappeared. So now we have a group of people who claim to be orthodox, but who believe that God has has become completely indifferent to the fate of the world. God is obviously angry uh, with what the Russian church did, and so in effect God is punishing uh, Russia and in fact the entire world, although the old believers never took their thinking beyond uh, the limits of of the uh, of the Russian uh, Empire. So, what do you do? How do you carry on an Orthodox life uh, if you uh, if there are no priests? Well, if you, there are no priests, there's nobody to uh, to marry lay people to perform the marriage sacrament. Uh, and so all of the priestless, priestless covenants, including the uh, Spasovites, began by claiming that uh, marriage was no more. Uh, and marriage, if you get married in an Orthodox church, that's an even worse sin than fornication. Fornication was, of course, a very bad thing. Um but getting married in an orthodox church with a, a, a heretical, as the, ortho, or the old believers would say, a heretical priest, uh, that was even worse. And, and so the Spasavites, like all of the other um, priestless old believer covenants, uh, in, the eight, in the early 18th century pre- proclaimed that marriage was no more. That uh, was possible, let's say, it was possible for the old believer intellectual elite, those who devoted their life full-time to uh, their uh, religious profession. Uh, They could manage a, a celibate lifestyle, both men and women, But I was studying peasants out in the villages, and one of the things that happened to peasants uh, was that although many of them may have begun uh, to live celibate lives, uh, for the peasantry, that's a form of suicide, uh, obviously, and it's more than just individual. It's suicide for the peasant household. A household is the basic social unit uh, in a peasant village and among peasants, among Russian peasants certainly. And if men don't marry, uh, then there will be no one. If sort of, if, if if sons don't marry, then there will be no one to support the father and the mother if they're still alive uh, later in life. Uh, and then eventually the the sons will die out and so th- it's easy to find in some of the villages that I was looking at it was easy easy to trace the the inevitable inevitable path from the adoption of a celibate lifestyle to the uh, death of the of the peasant household uh, so what Generally happened among peasants, not all peasants. Well, what generally happened among peasants is that they resumed marriage, uh, despite the protests, despite the commands of the leaders of their particular covenants. But this happened in all covenants. Uh, there was, and eventually, all covenants ev- accepted that marriage was going on and they they adopted some of them adopted new rules which they claimed uh, allowed peasants to bless their children into marriage uh there was relatively famous um, thinker associated with the Pomorsk, one of the more interesting old believer groups, who claimed that it wasn't actually the priest who consecrated the marriage; it was God who concentrate, con- con- consecrated uh, the marriage, along with the parental blessing, which made marriage, which is also a constituent element of a of a legitimate marriage, so the, the 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 priest in this interpretation was merely witnessing uh, the marriage. It Was God who was uh, performing um, the marriage? I mean, that's a very deviant uh, interpretation. I I don't know that I would call it theological, but it was probably it, ver- it verges on so, on a mm-hmm. kind of a theological principle, at least so then the 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 next step, if you want me to keep going uh is to explain what happened in particular in the spovite uh, covenant because uh, they were the most radical in denying the existence in practice that is there are no of any sacraments at all sometime during the eighteenth century, however. Uh, the Spasavite covenant decided that uh, Sposavites could have their babies christened by an Orthodox priest in an Orthodox church, and that Spasavite couples could be married by an Orthodox priest in an Orthodox church. They didn't claim that these were genuine sacraments, uh, so they did not justify them in this innovation in uh, a theological way. It was, in fact, a bow to reality. Uh, Old believers in other covenants in similar situations also had to make adaptations to the reality of, in particular, life in um, the villages. So at some point Sposavites be resume marriage, but just as Spassovite leaders, I'm assuming it's just as that's a guess. At some point after the Spassovites uh, resume marriage, female Spasavites in increasing numbers become averse to marriage. That is, Spassovite men marry Spassovite women. Don't marry, uh, which, Hmm. and that—that's evident. I mean, the fact is that uh, the pattern went like this: when you have a complete set of uh, an adequately dense and lengthy set of um, demographic records. Uh, what you see in the 18th century is that there, there's a first generation, a small, relatively small generation of spas- spasivite women who don't marry. Most of the spasivite women at first do marry. But then in the second generation, uh, uh, a very large number, of, so the number of spasivite women who don't marry increases rapidly. And at the same time, uh, a certain number of men also become marriage averse so there's one generation in which there's a substantial number of houses or households uh, that become celibate and you can in some of the demographic records you can almost pinpoint the moment at which a household decides to go completely celibate because in some cases there are children but then there are no children suddenly the, the sort of to be several married couples in a single household and at a certain point none of the couples produce children anymore i mean there's if that happens in one or two households then um there are other possible explanations but if it's a cluster a significant cluster of households in one relatively small village then you can say yes there's a very good probability that these households even when they have already married uh, these households have chosen uh, the path of celib- celibacy, but that proved to be so destructive that it only there was only a single generation of men among whom some did not marry. After that first sort of second generation in the demographic history, the generation in which some men don't marry, um, the marriage among men resumes in the third generation. While the number of women who don't marry increases, that's a very peculiar pattern, and it was identical in all of the the, the three villages that I used as the basis of case studies, where I could follow, where I had adequate records for tracing these things in in some detail. So um, this this is a bit paradoxical. I don't have a particularly good explanation for it, uh, but just as, uh, just as just as just uh, as is figuratively speaking, even after the sposavite covenant adopts marriage as a permissible practice, uh, more and more sposified women stop stop marrying. If Eventually, a century later, uh, eventually, uh, all varieties of the spotsified covenant, and there are at least three of them, and three varieties, and maybe more. Uh, they they all, um, for the most part, uh, practice marriage. Um, but in the in the initial in the in the second half of the 18th century and the first quarter or the first third of the 19th century uh the women in very large surprisingly astoundingly large numbers don't marry so uh i've gone on a little bit too long so i will add then what, what the other so the, the, this raises a lot of questions so uh, one set of questions has to do what's the impact of um this these uh, strange demographic demographic practices um, so, when large numbers of women um, don't marry, uh, they, their households begin to accumulate um, unmarried adult women. Uh, this greatly disturbs the sort of balance between work, labor, and mouths to feed. And this is further complicated by the fact that when one household collapses, refugees have to find shelter in some other household. So they're not only accumulating their own women born into the household, they're gathering in extra women as well. Uh, So the in other words, the. Practice of women not marrying. And in some households, there can be three or four women in the household, adult women who never married. that be in the older generation and then the middle generation. Um, and so if you have four adult women who never married, and the sons are marrying or bringing in women, so you get a, a we can call them surplus uh, of women, or you can call them extra mouths who don't perform the amount of labor that's needed to sustain the household at a level of what a peasant would consider well being. So that's one. So the, this practice had led, this practice led sponsified households to be particularly vulnerable to household extinction. And that stands out. Can, the rates of extinction can be calculated from the uh, demographic uh, records. There, is, there, is an ex- there are exceptions, but the pattern seems to be that spasivite households, households with lots of extra women, adult women, uh, had a tendency to expire considerably more rapidly than households that didn't accumulate um, extra adult uh, women. That's one. And then there's also many, many of the many of the many Spassivites are on surf estates. Uh, and one of the things that had always been a sore has mostly been assumed to be the case is that uh, surf owners took great pains to ensure that all their women married. And. Um, that turned out not to be true, um, but so. But, in any, but one of the things that uh, the practice of adult surf women not marrying did was to cause surf owners really for the first time to attempt to force their uh, surf women to marry or to exploit economically uh, their unwillingness to marry. For instance, surf owners uh, charged a fine unmarried uh, adult women, meaning the father would have to pay uh, a fine for his unmarried adult daughters, uh, or, and sometimes both, uh, or the uh, surf owners started uh, manumitting uh, Women, surf women who would not marry, uh, and, and charging uh, the father or the family a very substantial amount of money uh, for, a, in return for a manumitting a, a woman who did not, a surf woman who did not uh, want to marry. Ordinarily, this the manumission price was a, about twice. Uh, about twice what the cost of a serf woman was on uh, the market. So, uh, sorry to have uh, gone on so long, but to summarize. So there's the issue of uh, tracing the pattern of large numbers of women not marrying, trying to figure out what was going on religiously. What were the Spasivites thinking? What especially were the Spasovite women thinking? Uh, then, what are the consequences for the sposovites themselves of this strange marriage practice? And what is the impact on serfdom? Uh, and it turns out i make I make an argument, I'm not ab- well, a hypothesis really, is I think, a well-grounded hypothesis, that it was the fact that by the second half of the eighteenth century, large numbers of sposcivite and not just sposified other old-believer women too, but large numbers of sposified women weren't marrying. Their peasant neighbors who were looking for wives for their sons complained to their owners, or when managers and owners looked at the copies of the census returns from their estates, they got their own copies, Uh, they noticed the fact that there were very large numbers of unmarried women on the estates. And so they tried to take measures against uh, these women who weren't married.
1: Um, And can you talk a little bit more about the nobles and the landowners and how, uh, as you write about in your book, they sort of misunderstood the motivations for marriage avoidance?
0: So the most common misunderstanding uh, was the assumption that peasants were charging each other excessively high bride prices. that is a the groom's family had to pay the bride's family a bride price. It's a practice in many societies. The bride price could be very high uh, and there was good reason to think that sometimes the bride price was so high, that is, the bride price that the bride's family demanded was so high that uh, some peasants could not meet it. And yes, peasants did frequently complain that they could not find a wife because the fathers of uh, marriageable women in their village um, were charging more than they could possibly pay. 200 rubles, 300 rubles, things like I mean, that was just is a very a very large sum of money, in the, let's say, in the 18th, early 19th. A um, uh, century, uh, but, but that wasn't the case at all. I mean, it was not the case that the bride price was the problem. If you couldn't find a pay for the bride, if the sort of the girl you had in mind had a father who wanted an excessively high bride price, you went to find you married somebody else instead. I mean, it wasn't just in places where um, uh, where women were not marrying that uh bride price was an important part of the con- of 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 a marriage uh it, even where all women married uh everybody had to pay every peasant household had to pay a bride price to bring um, a wife in for a son so it was an understandable sort of the mistake about the bride price that was an un- an understandable misunderstanding so priestless old believers, because they didn't marry, very quickly gained a reputation among in within the church, among um, members of the Russian elite, among serf owners, um, gained a rep- reputation for fornicating. I mean, how can these women not be um, not be marrying? They must be fornicating um there probably there definitely was some of that going on but i don't think any more than in orthodox um families yeah so those were uh the, the fornication was a kind of a, a cultural stereotype any woman any sort of relatively young adult woman who wasn't married and was living not living in a in a an obviously religious life not living in a in a monastery uh not Spending all every every waking hour in church, um, uh, those w- women were automatically suspected of having loose morals. eventually the um, some some some, some, um, some surf owners did did figure out or were they learned by listening to what their serfs were saying. Uh, learned that there was a religious basis to this um, practice although uh, that didn't change their attitude towards it at all i mean they were either eaten they they really they really wanted their uh, their peasant women to marry but if the serf women just stubbornly refused to marry despite whatever moral and other pressure was applied to them then they were determined to uh, charge the woman's family for the for the privilege of not having to marry
1: Uh, Now, you make the case in your book that uh, the predominance of marriage avoidance in spasavite communities also tells us that the daughters had more of a choice in general in the community over whether they were going to marry and whom. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Right. I had to think about this for a while, and not everybody. When I was giving um, papers or discussing chapters with uh, colleagues at conferences, uh, uh, a, a lot of people objected. So here's the... And it would be difficult to, I could not make that argument, except for the fact that uh, in a number of Spasavite households where if you had three daughters, two of them would not marry, one of them would. So what is the likelihood that, and we, we have this assumption that especially in the 18th century, it must be the case that Parents are making the choice for daughters. That is, parents are, so fathers in particular, are said to have always decided when and to whom the daughter would marry. The, 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 the brides and many times as well the grooms didn't really have a, a say in decisions about marriage. It was the parents on the two sides that made the decisions, but what when you how how would you explain a family in which one daughter, or not just one family, because it might she might be blind, she might be crippled. You can't always the, the sources don't always tell you what kind of physical or mental incapacity there might be. Um, but it's when this is again it's when there's a cluster of these households, uh, and when one out of three daughters is marrying or. Two out of three daughters is marrying. What's the how, how do, is the father making the decision about which daughters can marry and which daughters won't marry? That doesn't seem likely to me. It's a possibility, but it doesn't seem uh, at all uh, likely and if you are in a spossivite household where there is a strong presumption that let's say in the late 18th century early 19th century there's a strong presumption that women are not supposed to marry um, then why would a why would the parents permit any daughter not to not, not to marry so it, it's Common in in all of the sites, the village sites that I've studied, where the demographic records are adequate for making this argument, um, there are households in which daughters or somebody is making split decisions: some daughters marry, others don't. Uh, From the We in a couple of in a couple of cases we can, however, identify related practices. In one of the case studies, it's apparent that uh, daughters, the daughters, the 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 old believer daughters who marry are marrying by elopement. That is, they have, in a way, taken charge. They demonstrate that they have taken charge because they are literally making their own uh, matches. And in another case. The the owner, Sergei Mikhailovich Galitsin, uh, sent instructions to a new state manager explaining that on this estate, fathers are permitting, are spoiling, are allowing their daughters not to marry. So in the the eyes of this particular serf owner, it it is the daughters who are making decisions about whether to marry uh, or not um, he He lived in Moscow, far away from that particular estate, but there's a lot of manorial correspondence he knew he was himself trying to force the women who weren 't marrying to marry and he did for a lot of money provide uh, manumission papers when the daughter when the father had enough money and the daughter stubbornly stubbornly stubbornly. Wouldn't marry. So he he may have known what he was talking about. But it's the the cases where women are making are demonstrating that they are making the choice by eloping. That seems to me the key to the argument that women really are the ones in spousivite households in which daughters making different decisions that they are making their own decision about whether to marry or not. Did
1: you find any evidence in the church records that you investigated of uh, local clergy trying to intervene in marriage avoidance?
0: Uh, y- yes. Uh, on the Galitsyn estate, this is in Nizhny, southern Nizhny Novgorod uh, province, the, poli- uh, the, um, the owner, Sergei Mikhailovich Galitsin. Uh, Repeatedly ordered his priests. That's what he thought. That's how he thought of them. Ordered the priests uh, to. um, They had several organized campaigns of trying to intimidate um, uh, the women uh, to marry. He ordered his managers one after another to compel women to marry. His efforts to force serf women to marry um, were, were. Largely unavailing, um, and one one of the reasons I think so. So why did they fail? Why did the, the awesome power of the serf owner to control his prop his human properties fate uh, fail? Um, uh, practically everybody on that estate was an old believer. Practically every one of the peasant officials on that estate was an old believer. The old believers bribed the priests. Uh, to get them off um, the hook, the old believers, when they wanted to marry, uh, that is, bribed the priests to perform old believer-style marriages using the same ritual, the ritual that uh, Nikon had abolished. Um, and so a serf owner sitting in Moscow far away from uh, his estate depends in large part on the Cooperation of peasant officials. I mean, you can appoint a manager. Um, Sergei Galitsyn um, should have known this, but he changed his managers too often. So his managers would spend two or three years running the estate. The first year, they would be entirely dependent on peasant elders to explain to them what was going on on the estate. Um, And then the peasant elders would bribe him. Um, It was very difficult for a Uh, a distant owner, to actually control what was going on on the state, so long as there was a relatively high degree of solidarity among the serfs. And there's nothing like being a persecuted religious minority to give you communal solidarity.
1: Uh, Why is there so few uh, sources from the Spasavites or the old believers themselves about their system of belief and practice?
0: Mm-hmm. So let me say first that there aren't. I encountered that problem, but so, so did, has everyone else who is, I mean there aren't all that many studies of Spassavites, but here's an example. Um, uh, Alexander Maltseff, who unfortunately died young, but was a prodigious researcher uh, in old believer uh, manuscripts, And he he found a manuscript uh, history, a manuscript history, you know, the initial version of which was written in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, And he was so delighted, so excited by finding what seemed to him to be the first account produced by Spassavites themselves about the history of their covenant. That he missed all the signs uh, demonstrating that this was a false history, that this was this was a f- fiction, and there are all, there are all kinds of signs. I actually wrote an article about that. Uh, that this this was um, yeah a, 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 a fictional history, and it was written in the context of a uh, a system among the spasovites uh, themselves. Um, so the spotlights were, for, them, for the most part, very secretive. So among the reasons, I'm convinced, why they decided that it was okay to go to confession and to get married in a church, in an orthodox church, that is, was because it, that provided camouflage. Uh, if uh, you, If you were baptized in the church, if you married in the church, and before you got married, you had to... Go to confession in the church. Uh, Then the priest considered you um, uh, Orthodox. Would report you as Orthodox to the diocese. uh, List you as Orthodox in the annual uh, confession register. And if you skipped for five or six years, you'd confession for five or six years, um, and then you go to confession once once a decade. That would Probably be enough uh, to get the, to persuade the priest that yes, you were maybe weak in the faith, but you were nevertheless um, uh, orthodox. Um, so at least from some at some time in the second half of the uh, eighteenth century, the the, um, the you might say, kind of went underground, uh, and they. Uh, so there there was an alternate name for spasovites and it's you could call it nothingites the Nyetotsi, and they they were all these, un, these underground nothingites were called underground nothingites or called themselves underground the lukhaas was the russian term for lukhiyanetetsy um and since they among other things did not hold church services for the, uh, themselves uh they did not so that they held discussions They, you know stand outside between their their cabins and talk about uh re- religion but they they didn't hold church services um they didn't have really any organized uh services so the uh the the Spasavites managed to um, conceal themselves. The, most most Spasavites in most places, the, my original Kuplia Parish was an exception. Uh, most of them were considered by the local priest, either because the priest was bribed or the priest really didn't know. Most most of these Sposavites were considered uh, to be uh, orthodox. Um, and I think, you know, you, you, this is one of them. How do you how do you prove a negative? Uh, my my assumption is that the Spassovites simply, because they were trying to kind of conceal themselves, uh, they did not. I'm sure they produ- they produced some documents. Uh, but not very many. I think it was deliberately to avoid attracting attention to themselves. I mean, that's yeah, I think that that's the pattern. I can't prove that. Uh, and it may be that there's some great catch of um, specified documents somewhere that will some somebody will sometime stumble upon, but a lot of people have been looking for them, and nobody has found them.
1: Uh, now what changed in the marriage behavior of the Spasovites between the 1830s and the 1850s uh, according to the data that you found in the villages you were looking at
0: So this was this was uh, I uh, formally the um, the Spasovites separated into two groups each calling themselves Spasovites but the breakaway group who called themselves uh, Spasovites of the Great Rite, meaning and what they meant by that was they had adopted a way of an, an, an abjuration ritual uh, under which they accepted new members who abjured their former heresies. The, uh, the traditionalist Spasavites accepted somebody into the into their covenant if they performed a few sets of ritual bows. Um, so, but the much more important difference uh, was for for me in my story. Uh, the much more important difference is that the. Um, the people who became the great right Spasavites uh, valued marriage. Uh, among other things, they said just what um so priestless old believers who argued against the leaders of their covenants in the 18th century often said, God commands us to be fruitful and multiply and control the earth. Um, not uh, control anyway. So it was uh, ma- marriage was a an important component. A dispute over marriage. We see this in uh, the 1830s in Couplia Parish. In the very it's not, at some point in the 1830s, I can't give a precise year, but in let's say between 1830 and 1834, uh, almost in almost every household in which there was a marriageable girl the marriageable girl married now this that it took one of the things that happened in the 19th century is that the census form changed uh and so in the 18th century women women were listed in the censuses starting in 1763 and so and, and then in the 18th century, the reason why a woman after 1763, uh, the reason why a woman was not present uh, in the household at the next census was also given. So having married, having died, having run away, something like that. That was the kind of a, the explanation given in the census. In the 19th century, uh, no explanation was given for Women who uh, disappeared between censuses. In fact, in the 18th century, in 1782, there were two lists of people in, in a census form. They gave the list of who had been there in 1763, and then they gave the list of who was there in 1782, and then explained why the people were, who were missing were missing. But in the 19th century, the century, the, the census form explains who is there in, let's say, 1750, but leaves out all information about who, what women had been there uh, in um, 1734, I mean, 1834, which was the um, preceding census. So it's, if you, if you have the 1834 and the 1850 census, you can identify what women have left, have disappeared, uh, but you don't know why they disappeared. And there are many different reasons why they might have But um, using the the best evidence that I can find to to figure out what most likely happened to uh, unmarried women um, in between 1834 and 1850, uh, it seems that almost all of them married and actually married away from the village. It's a very small village, so most 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 brides are from different villages and most young women in the village married into other uh, uh, villages. Um, so that began, it, it's, it's a, a sharp, I mean, there's no there, there's no question that a collective decision was taken by the local Spasavites. This happened not just in Kuplia Parish, but I mean, in uh, Sluchkova, it happened in the other two, um, you know, former crown, pe- crown peasant villages uh, in the parish. It, it happens. The resumption of marriage by young women happens so- simultaneously in all three of those uh, villages. Uh, there was a, a specified elder uh, living seven kilometers away in the very tiny city of. It just happens that uh, when a formal split was made, uh, occurred in the 1740s, uh, the, a very sp- a small council of, uh, of uh, Spasavite elders met in this tiny city of Gerechavietz and proclaimed the split. Uh, and so I believe that the resumption of marriage in Kuplia Parish Uh, Was the first sign uh, that a split was going to happen. And it happened because uh, the people in the breakaway, the the breakaway um, uh, spasovites believed that marriage was a religious duty. God has commanded us to marry.
1: Uh, now, to wrap up, um, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, conclusion, or as you call it, in conclusions. Uh, so, can you talk about why you named the final section that uh, and what questions you feel <laughs> still remain about uh, this area of research?
0: I did that because it was clear, clear to me that I'd left a lot of questions unanswered. It was not, it can, it can, I felt that the, the questions unanswered were so obvious that I had to admit it and to make a point about the things i couldn't uh, address and why and why i couldn't so number 1 and this is the question that uh, was i was continually asked uh, is how how do i explain the behavior of the young women and i really don't have a good explanation i call in the book as you know i call the, the phosphites the covenant of despair because Sposified teaching left them no real hope of salvation. They they dressed very plainly as plain as the Amish. I think that would be a reasonable comparison. Uh, they allowed themselves no color, no decoration at all in their clothing. They banned even colorful bags and is a, not, not, nothing multicolored. Their, 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 their bags had to be as gray, as unattractive as uh, their clothing. I think this was a sign of their despair, a symbol of uh, the sad state of the world and of their own fate as they saw things. And there are, there are bits and pieces of evidence that support this. Um, I mean, I just didn't make it up. Uh, but it's a very incomplete demonstration of, the, of, of what women were thinking when they decided uh, not to marry. So that's, that's number one. The internal spiritual life of the Sposavites because of the almost complete lack of documentation of it, um, is something that I recognize as being a huge missing part of the argument that I would like to make, but there just isn't evidence uh, to fill in that gap. Another major lacuna in our gaping hole is, whole, is um, a demographic question. In and around Couplia Parish, so many women... Refused to marry. I mean, I think the average around uh, Kuplia Parish is that about twenty percent of all adult women ne- never never married. I mean, that's that's below the astounding level in suchkova uh, and in one of the other villages in Kuplia Parish. But if 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 every if every, huh, every Spasovite man is marrying and after a single generation in the 18th century, every Spasavite male did marry and 20% of the Spasavite feel uh, uh, women aren't marrying, then where are the Spasavite men getting their wives? I assume that they are marrying women of other old believer confessions who are willing to marry into the Spasavite confession covenant, but uh, I can't be sure of that. But There were so many Sposavites in the area that there's no question that um, if 20% of the women in the district are not marrying, then there aren't enough women to be wives for all the men. I have no idea how that um, demographic uh, shortfall was filled. I propose, as you know, that we can imagine the... Distance that men would go searching for brides kept increasing. I know that's true for the in the 18th century. I hypothesize that that continued into the 19th century, at least up to 1830. Uh, um, but it's a demo, it's a demographic puzzle that I can't really solve. Uh, it would. Yeah, for reasons that are both obvious and not so obvious, that's a very hard puzzle to solve. I'm trying to keep track of the doc, a complete set of documents to answer the question will not ever be able to be assembled. Okay. I don't know how many, uh, what what proportion of the covenant broke apart from the traditionalist Spasavites in 18, uh, in the 1840s. I don't know what happened to the traditionalist Spasovites after the 1850s, because the 1858 census is the last one that listed everybody household by household. Most of the confession registers, which are pretty good demographic sources, uh, were destroyed. In the 1920s, the Soviet Archive, Informa- in Archive Directorate Uh permitted local archives to destroy the uh, confession registers, and it seems that all, everywhere, um, at, so after a certain date, after eight, all confession registers after 1865 could be th- thrown away, and they almost all were, every, every place that I've looked. But they also threw away most, in most archives, threw away most of the confession registers from before. But in any case, I have no sources comparable to the ones I used for the 18th and first half of the 19th century to chart either spossified demographic um, uh, practices or quantify or try to quantify uh, exactly how many uh, uh, spossifieds. Uh, and of what kind there were. So the story—I can't carry the story to the end. I hypothesized and explained why I was doing it this way: uh, that the rate of at which specified women or old believer women in general were avoiding marriage gradually declined in the second half of the of the 19th century. But I'd like to have more. And that's that's at best it's a um, plausible guess. Uh, again, it's uh, an obvious part of the story, and I don't know how to how to fill that gap. So I think I accomplished a number of things that were interesting, but I'm also aware of how many how many things I that seem obviously need explanation that I've been unable to explain. Okay.
1: Well, Doctor Bushnell, thank you very much again for joining me today. It was a great pleasure to read your book and to discuss it with you.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.